0: Hello and welcome to the fried egg podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison. And for today's episode, I sat down with Andy Johnson to discuss the state of the restoration trend in the American golf industry today. But first, this episode is brought to you by the United States Golf Association. So you probably know the USGA mainly for its championships for the US Open, the US Women's Open, the US Amateur Tournaments, and many others. But the USGA is also a huge investor in the future of golf. They run junior golf programs, agronomy studies, sustainability initiatives, and just overall efforts to make the game healthier and more diverse, more accessible. The way the USGA does this is through the support of USGA members. Your membership fees help make all of these programs possible. So if you would like to get a USGA membership or give one to someone else as a holiday gift, you can go to usga.org slash fried egg. If you purchase a membership that way, you'll get a 20% discount code at the USGA shop. That's just a special bonus for fried egg listeners. So usga.org slash fried egg. Get yourself or someone else a USGA membership. All right. So in this podcast, we are going to have a discussion about an article that you wrote, Andy, recently for our website published this week about the great remaining restoration opportunities in American golf. So the courses that still need to be restored even after we've had a big restoration boom in the golf architecture industry. Um, and so uh, it's an interesting article. It really has uh, generated a lot of discussion. So we thought we'd dig in a little bit further in a podcast. Um, So maybe we could start with just what prompted you to write this article. Definitely,
1: yeah. This has been something I think over the last month or so that's really been on my mind. Is as you look around and you start to see, you know, the important thing is is clarifying. Like you know, the article was based on courses that you know don't have a clear restoration plan in place or a, a consulting architect you know recently hired to con- to put together a master plan so you know the likes of Yale you know we know that's going to happen next year you know the shutdown's planned and and then over the next 2 years Yale's going to be restored that's not on the list right it's it's the courses that you know have shown kind of zero impetus for you know, restoring their golf course in the, in the recent years, and don't have really a plan that that I put put on this list. So you know, as you see news different places, Kansas City Country Club just hired, I think Kyle Franz and Tyler Ray. You know, and and these different clubs around the country, you're just started to check off like, oh, there's a there's a Tillinghast restoration, there's a Lookout Mountain, you know, is doing work, and then you see the work that was done, like really you know, pivotal work that was done recently. Like, Oakland Hills is a huge restoration just because of what Oakland Hills stood for. That was the first course that was renovated and the first course that had this open doctor-type mentality which diverted away from the classic Golden Age. That being restored to Ross, that's a, that was like one of the last titans to fall, really, when you think about America. And, you know, what? what we have here is we see this, you know trend that's dominated the last 10 15 years of golf course architecture, you know, there hasn't been that many new builds. The predominant work in the industry is restoration. You start to see read the tea leaves and it, it's kind of coming to an end. Um and, you know, the the remaining re- great restorations for the most part fall into two buckets. They're either public golf courses or private clubs that host championship golf regularly and that's really the two buckets of golf courses that have remaining restoration and those from those senses they have big barriers that inhibit restoration work so that's kind of what prompted the article and it's something that i've been thinking about a lot lately is like what you know what's going to be the next big restoration and that was the idea between behind putting together the article is like here are the ones that like frankly are the ones that I'm really would be excited about and you know for you know most of the ones that are not on the list I don't necessarily know if those should be restored now obviously I miss some and maybe we'll talk about some of the ones I miss but like that's the other line is like what should be restored what should be renovated and you know just because the golf course was built from 1909 to 1930 doesn't mean it should be restored
0: well, so let's put a little finer point on where we are in this restoration boom that has been going on for the past 20 plus years or so, but re- really, I mean it has ramped up in the past decade, but it's been with us for uh, I'd say at least two decades in the golf industry where courses are intentionally restoring original architecture from the 1910s, 20s and 30s, the the so-called golden age of golf architecture. Just look down the list of a magazine ranking, right now, you know that's an imperfect measure of what the great important courses actually are, but it kind of gets you started. Just look down that list and consider how many courses have gotten restoration work done lately. You know, Pine Valley, maybe that could be one that that, that could use some <laughs> restoration work. We didn't go there because we haven't been to Pine Valley ourselves, and and so you know uh, we're we're just judging from pictures. But that's at the top of most of these lists. Relatively well preserved architecture overall. Cypress Point has been well preserved. That has not really needed a a massive restoration at any point.
1: I think the important thing to note too is like the types of restoration work. Like something that's become popular, I'd say, in the last 10 years, with, you know, and Gil Hance does a lot of this type of work is you shut down the course, and Andrew Green's doing a lot of this now. Shut down the course, do it all in one shebang. You close for a year, you open back up. the The other school of that is what I think Tom Doak and Bill Core did a lot of early on was, you know, here's your master plan, and we're going to accomplish this over ten years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tom Doak and and Bill Core and their associates have been very involved in gradual projects like that consulting we could call yeah
1: and 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 i think cypress has undergone that type of work over over time and and that's the type of work that you know oakmont has done prairie dunes yeah prairie dunes chicago golf probably yeah chicago golf actually did a big bunker renovation last year uh, they shut down in, in in August, and or end of August, and were open back up at the beginning of the year. It was a, uh, It was a restoration that flew very under the radar. Yeah, as
0: Chicago golf likes to do, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, But just to name some courses that have undergone one of those sort of all-at-once restorations, the ones that are really visible and noticeable when you look at the before and afters. There's Marion is a big recent example of a Gil Hance Restoration, Pinehurst number two, Los Angeles Country Club North Course, Winged Foot West, Seminole, Corin Crenshaw. All of these courses have recently done restoration work and they've kind of been ticked off the list. For years, Seminole was on this list for sure. For years, Winged Foot has been on this list of great restoration candidates for sure. And just a ton of them, I think what we noticed is that a ton of them have been checked off lately and have done the work that they've needed.
1: Even, of course, a per, one that's kind of flying under the radar is Sciota. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. You know, where you had Jack Nicholas come in and do some changes that dramatically altered a a Ross championship golf course. Um, and that one will open next year with Andrew Green doing it. And that's, you, you know, like it, that's the thing you start to go down the list of, like, and there's Andrew been Green. all these courses that you always said, well, you know, there's always like the, what if the great, what ifs, there aren't many great, what ifs anymore. And that's, that's really an, an interesting thing. We're going to enter a new kind of chapter of golf design in America in the next five years. And I think that, Chapter is going to be centered around because of what's happened with the economy, um, with you know the after effects of COVID, is a lot of the people that have a lot of money have a lot more money, and I think you're going to see a big golf development boom. I think there's going to be more new courses than we've seen since the you know economic crash in 2008. I don't think you know I think we're going to see more development in the next five years than we've seen since then. And then I think the other big thing is going to be renovation work, is you're going to see a lot of golf courses that are, you know, that have great pieces of land or are fundamentally flawed that are just blown up and redone. And we've seen some of that start to leak out with the Pinehurst number four, for example, would be an example of that. And that's an interesting, it's a different animal because those project, projects are much more complex than restoration for the most part, because what you have to do with those projects is you have to undo the bad stuff. And the majority of the time that goes into the project is undoing the bad stuff to build the good stuff. So it's almost like double the work. And you know, uh, with timelines and different things, people aren't patient. Like those those are, uh, almost become more work than new
0: builds. Or at least those kinds of projects are a little more difficult to sell. You mentioned that with reno, um, sorry, with restoration projects, that there are kind of two buckets that are remaining. One bucket is the courses for the regular golfer. A lot of these are public or municipal courses that still need to be restored or, or still could be restored um, because they're great, but they've just kind of lost their way over the years and they haven't done the restoration work yet because they just haven't had the money and time to do it. And then the other bucket is the championship golf bucket, where the barrier to doing a restoration is often, well, we can't, you know, turn back the clock to the twenties here because that course would be too short and easy for these pros that we host at tournaments, and so we need to do something something else. Um, and so let's talk about that bucket for a minute. What are some of the complexities and considerations that? that we have to bring to bear when we're talking about championship courses that could be restored.
1: Obviously, I think it starts with defending par and the uh the concept of par that has really stricken golf uh for eternity. The idea that that par pars obviously changed and and you know there's this uh conception that uh rough lots of rough, narrow fairways and long golf courses is the best version of championship golf. I thought, you know, uh, Joe LaMagna had a really interesting tweet. Who's been on this pod, a, a data scientist, I guess you could call him, um, a consultant to some PGA tour players on data Talked about, you know, Albany, which isn't a great golf course, but has wide fairways and, um, a lot of, you know, sh- interesting shorter par fours where, you know, d- what's more, you know, entertaining of a golf product one where you know at albany to separate you know yourself you have to hit it close versus you know these long narrow punishing golf courses if you hit it to 30 feet you're separating yourself from the field um so you know i think one of the things with these golf courses that is a constraint especially you know at at the top of the list if you haven't read it yet is um
0: let's look at let's look at the article yeah. Number one is Augusta National. Number two is Riviera. Number three is Pebble Beach. Number four is TPC Sawgrass. So
1: top four are all these you know, landmark championship courses. And each of them has, I think, a little bit of a different um, conundrum, per se. All right. So if we want to go in order, you've got Augusta National. Now, I don't think that a, a true restoration is ever going to be in the cards here. Like, let's just put that out there like you're never going back like and and you know it's important to go there like is, to understand like restoration is a loose term that's used for a lot of things i think we, where i think golf fans would be be enthused with augusta national is if the the look and the style of play that was you know the look was abandoned in the 50s and 60s or the, probably the 60s but the style of play was abandoned when tiger woods came along and now if we if, if golf i think golf fans and golf architecture fans would be really enthused if the style of play and aesthetic of the early days were embraced now like the t's the lengthening of the t's the adding of bunkers that's fine you know that's that's what they they feel like needs to happen but the rough you know there shouldn't be rough out there like the ball should roll and roll into the pine straw. You should be in the fairway or the pine straw. That's kind of how the golf course was imagined. That's what Alistair McKenzie and Perry Maxwell imagined with the golf course. Now, you know, and then obviously everybody always points to the bunker style. You know, the right now they have these blah white saucers. If you could get those McKenzie bunkers back, it would be wonderful. Now, Tom Fazio is the consulting architect at Augusta national. Now, Tom Fazio's done, you know, obviously he's one of the most prolific architects of of his era. But you know he's he's kind of getting up there in age. So I think one of the things that that's an interesting thing to watch over the next ten years, they're probably going to have a new consulting architect architect in the next five years. That's probably a reality of the situation. I think Pine Valley is probably in that same bucket because they, Uh, Tom Fazio uh, is the consulting architect there as well. So that's a really interesting thing to watch. And, uh, you know, I think the final thing I'd say about Augusta National is the the way they mow. They mow into, you know, everything they do is to prevent distance, right, is to make the golf course play longer so it plays more as the golf course was intended to play. But what happens is they lose the idea of the ball rolling and off those slopes into the out-of-play areas.
0: You know, the architectural history of Augusta National, as everybody knows, is super complex. Um, If you haven't read this article, you really should. Ron Witten's research project for Golf Digest on the complete changes to Augusta National. Go read that article if you haven't already. It's an incredible resource for understanding exactly how much has changed. It is a, a kind of compendium of the changes that have happened to each hole at Augusta. And there are, there's a dizzying array of changes that have happened over the years at different times at the hands of different architects. Now, I mean, there's changes every year. Absolutely. And some of them maybe were for the better. Some of them certainly not. So I think what you're dealing with at Augusta national is a 1933 design that wasn't necessarily all the way there. You know, it was an Alistair McKenzie, Bobby Jones design, it had a lot of brilliant ideas, but it wasn't necessarily perfectly suited to what the course would become. And that is a course that hosts the masters. Um, also, you know, when the course was designed, the economy was was really starting to go kaput. Alistair McKenzie was nearing the end of his life. The golf industry was just in a really weird place. I'm not sure that the course was as fully realized when it opened as a course like Cypress Point, right? Where that, that was really a finished course when it opened, and if Cypress Point had ever strayed away from its original design, we could very easily say go back to that. We cannot say go back to the 1933 Augusta National, not just because it's not feasible, which it isn't, but also because maybe the course wasn't quite its best self when it initially opened perfect example would be like the 10th hole you know it was a shorter par four
1: with a punch bowl green and a hollow and people oh bring this back but you know perry maxwell was a pretty capable architect
0: and that's a great hole too
1: (laughs) yeah and he moved that that hole up on the hill and it's an unbelievable green site that it sits there today where it is today is where Perry Maxwell moved that and now what's a better hole for championship golf is the a, a shorter par 4 with the punch bowl and the hollow or the 10th hole today i would probably say that the 10th the hole today where you're testing players hitting a mid iron off a downslope i guess it's more of a short iron now yeah. off a downslope to an elevated elevated severe green that is a shot that you don't see very often now like i think that's a better hole for for the modern game right and and that's the complexity of restoration is figuring out what is the best version and and i think you know if we want to move the conversation this fits perfectly with the discussion of Pebble Beach that's the big question with Pebble Beach and, and why I think restoration's hard there is, is like where where do you go back to the the course ha- is in a way an architectural mutt more so than uh, today than ever before because you've got Nicholas you've got you know you've got the uh, the Morse uh, influence you've got the the uh, Allison McKenzie Chandler Egan stuff and then you've got just you know what. What hosting us opens uh does to a golf course which which just narrows the the playing field or the playing field that you have and uh and just father time with shrunk greens and and narrow fairways
0: yeah and you've got the douglas grant and jack neville original design which not many people have actually looked at i don't think many people actually know what pebble beach looked like when it opened in 1919 but it's a lot different than it looks you lived there (laughs) <laughs> i did i did live there i didn't live there in 1919 um but uh but i i i walked around that course quite a bit and thought about it quite a bit and it's a great course now you know to be clear like this is a great golf course but
1: and, and that's the same with augusta national yeah
0: like, oh augusta's augusta still great i mean they still have the greens a lot of the greens at least at augusta national that either Mackenzie built or uh, or Maxwell built, and, and they're just great. Now, uh, okay, so Pebble Beach, the routing was there pretty much from the beginning. The greens, as we understand them now, were definitely not there at the beginning. I don't think you want to go back to those original greens. They were pretty rudimentary. If you look at the original seventh green, for instance, I think a lot of people would be shocked at how different that is and how kind of bland it is. It was just like this big expanse at the bottom of the peninsula there. Now, Chandler Egan, when when he came in and made some changes for the 1929 US Amateur, Chandler Egan had worked for Alistair McKenzie on a few California projects for people who don't know. Um he turned that into a really cool green surrounded by this dunescape. Now, there are a couple of pictures of this green as as Chandler Egan renovated it. They always get trotted back out on social media at every Pebble Beach Pro Am or whenever Pebble Beach hosts a big tournament. And people obsess over this kind of dunesy look that Chandler Egan introduced to the seventh hole, to the fourth hole, and a couple of other holes, I believe, at Pebble Beach in the late 20s. Now, I don't think this was ever the right choice for Pebble Beach to put faux dunes there. That's just not the nature of that landscape. I don't think they would have lasted if they even were given an opportunity to last. And I just don't think that's what we need to go back to. I I don't think a restoration to the Chandler-Egan look at the course is the right path. But maybe we can consider what Egan and McKenzie did to some of the greens at Pebble Beach. Really look at those, look at the dimensions of the greens, look at the contours, And consider that as part of a historical renovation plan. Um, Now, there would have to be a lot of creativity in any plan to uh, make Pebble Beach meet its full potential. There There would have to be some choices that an architect, bold choices that an architect would need to make. But I think it's definitely possible to improve that course substantially.
1: Yeah, and and this is the thing. This is the um, aspect of Pebble is like this rudimentary version of itself. The routing, you know, and obviously it got it got developed off of this routing. This routing delivered eight to ten world class golf holes, like holes that you would say are among the very best in the world. When you think about Pebble Beach, you think three. Four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Um, then you go 16 is a terrific hole. 18.
0: 18, one of the best finishing holes anywhere.
1: You know, they could be, it could be all rough and they'd still be great golf holes just <laughs> yeah. because of the topographical features like you know you could you could just let them go to seed and it would be fun to go play those golf holes like if you didn't mow them for two years you could play field golf on those golf holes and it would be extraordinarily exhilarating so this is the thing with pebble beach is that it it is this you know the routing it was done early and it was you know but it delivered these holes so i don't think you could ever do a renovation There's one one hole that needs to be rerouted, is is the uh, the par three fifth.
0: Yeah, well, so (laughs) that's that's even a discussion. Jack Nicholas renovated. Jack Jack Nicholas put it along the cliffs. It used to go inland, and I I think everybody regard most people regard that as as a positive choice because you've got another hole on the cliffs. Um, And if they had been allowed to put a hole on the cliffs originally, they probably would have. But the charm of the old fifth hole, even if it was kind of a nothing hole, is that after you walk off that green, you're basically right at the sixth tee and you get this great reveal of the sixth hole, which is my favorite hole at Pebble Beach. And right now you have the fifth hole, you're already on the cliffs, you kind of see the sixth hole early, and then you have to walk backwards to the sixth tee. And it just doesn't have quite the, the same. That walk so bad. The walk is really bad. It's like <laughs> it, a, it you're
1: walking on. It feels like you're walking on a public road up a hill. Like that was the sacrifice for path. getting a hole on the
0: cliffs is is that walk. And, yeah. and they and they haven't really paid attention to that walk either. Landscaped it or anything. It's just kind of there. Um, but anyway, that that's a that's a minor point maybe in the scheme of things. But uh, but yeah, restoration renovation. I think is this is where we call it a historic renovation where where we're looking at historic elements of the course and uh, but but also feeling free not to be completely faithful to the Egan plan or the Grant Neville plan or whatever.
1: And the other complex thing with Pebble Beach is that it's the most expensive uh public golf course to play in in America. It is a uh, packed tee sheet and if you were running a business You would say, I I don't know why we we need to shut down the course, cost ourselves. (laughs) I I think I haven't done the math, but I imagine hundreds of millions of dollars in lost tea revenue to improve a golf course that has a uh, supply and demand issue. If anything, like people always complain about Pebble Beach. Like, if you were running a, a, a business, like you'd say, well, we should charge more because we have a packed tea sheet every single day. And uh, we're charging a rate that like until we meet a threshold that doesn't lead to a packed T sheet every day, then we're, we're actually on a, a bargain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're not going to have a meeting after we release this podcast and be like, all right, guys, I guess we have to shut down our course mm-hmm. and do a historic renovation because the guys on the fried egg podcast said that we should. Uh, they have really no reason, no impetus to do this kind of work right now because that place prints money. So, you know, if you look at, if, say, there
1: became a movement, you know, within to do work at, at Pebble Beach, it would need to be this work that's done over a 10-year period. It would need, it's not going to be a full course shutdown. I, I just can't imagine the the economic loss, not only for the golf course, but also the neighboring community would be massive. And I don't, I couldn't foresee that type of a, a renovation so you're going to talk about a golf course that's getting worked on over 10 to 15 years and what's the complexity of that well you it's a, a usga anchor site and you've got us opens coming back every what is it eight years or so to pebble beach
0: and they have to their credit done some of this gradual work on the golf course 17th things. hole 17th hole they've they've expanded the green uh the 14th hole par 5 i think they've done a really successful green expansion there that green got way too small for how steep it was and they have expanded it out the back and i think that that has very much improved the hole they've recaptured the old 10th tee i guess it is which is right next to the ninth green just a great angle into that hole turns it into more of a diagonal hazard drive and so they're definitely doing some small things here and there gradually to uh, recapture some elements of the golf course that have been lost over time. Um, I wish they would do more, but again, they don't necessarily have the motivation to do more, understandably. And uh, so we'll see. Um, OK, so we've, I think we've talked enough about Pebble. Uh, that's number three on the list. We skipped over number two, which is Riviera. Do you want to dig into that one? Cuz Riviera. yeah, we've I mean, talked right about this. Right now, with... Riviera is the best course on the PGA Tour every yeah. year. And I don't think it's particularly close. It's so fun to watch that tournament at Riviera. And uh, so a lot of people would say just that. Like, hey, Riviera's doing fine. Um what do you think needs to change there?
1: I think the the discussion here is, you know, you, you, we talked about this with Jeff Jackelford uh when we did the George Thomas podcast. Now Riviera is one of the best golf courses in America right now. But you know what Riviera fully realized, fully restored is is arguably the best course on the West Coast. Um in its own town, you know, it it, it it's got George Thomas, uh, you know, with LACC North has clearly supplanted it as the best course in town. Now, whether or not LACC North fully restored and Riviera fully restored what the best course is that that's something that you know we don't know because we haven't seen that for a very long time so I think with with uh Riviera you know you you've got this kind of a conundrum and and it's this golf course is really really good um not much has changed that's the thing with Riviera more so than Augusta and Pebble is that it's all just sitting there. It's the simplest project of all the projects on this uh, almost all. probably all the projects on this list is that like it's just sitting there. Nothing has been monkeyed around. It's you're talking about tree removal and bunker restoration and green expansion and fairway expansion. That's like then you're you're done, you know? That that golf course is is great. You know, it obviously is hosting the Olympics coming up. It hosts the the Genesis every year and uh, it it's got something else that usually lends itself to really great restorations is it's a single owner, really great golf projects. It it is a single owner. It is, uh, and they have obviously a very powerful GM there. Um, and, um, that that lends itself usually to really great restoration projects it could go either way right a golf star it can be a good thing or a bad thing and i think right now the the club is very happy, happy with what it is um you know it charges exorbitant guest fees it hosts this event every year and it is the pride of the uh, pride of the PGA Tour, that is the star of the PGA Tour. Now, you know what it could be is more than that, and that's that's the question: is what what do they want it to be? Right?
0: I I think that they're fairly happy with it, what it is right now. Uh, and, and that's the hard and, thing, which is it's, which it's is hard like, to argue against because it's like, hey, you should be happy. This is a great golf course, but I think we both see the potential in it. But the the thing that is easier about Riviera than Pebble. And Augusta National is the original design was fully realized, completely brilliant, I think would hold up well today. But well, um,
1: it's held up really well. Yeah, as it has it held.
0: Well, I mean, some people would argue the trees have, have made it harder. The narrowing fairways have made it harder. I don't think any of that is really what makes riviera difficult enough to be a feature course on the pga tour i think it's the greens i think that's that's what it is right there and so if you push those fairway lines back out if you took out some of the eucalyptus trees that are the grasses they're they're in weird places yeah i think it would still be a tough course a tough enough course for for pga tour players and uh you know if you look at that original thomas design it's just so brilliant it's so great and, uh, and so you have an easy reference point where you're like, this is what the golf course could be. It was it was really a course that met its full potential early on. How can we bring back as much of that as possible?
1: I think, you know, and I'm just going to leave Augusta out of this, but when you look at Sawgrass, you look at Pebble, and you look at Riviera, these are courses that host tournaments one time a year, one week a year, 51, we- uh, 51 other weeks. It's just about regular play. And with, with restoration work done, it would be a, uh, you know, just like such a supremely more fun golf course for the everyday player to play day in, day out with the restoration work. So, you know, what all these courses have done is that they've prioritized the one week and the people that are getting paid to show up to play over. The 51 other weeks and the members that pay their dues, the guests that come stay at their resort and pay exorbitant fees uh, in the cases of TPC, Sawgrass and uh, Pebble Beach.
0: All right. Let's take a quick break for a word from our other sponsor for this episode, Precision Pro Golf. So Precision Pro is proud to announce the next big thing in golf technology, and that's the Ace Smart Speaker. This is a portable Bluetooth speaker that can read distances to you. So the ACE smart speaker doesn't just play music. ACE stands for Audio Caddy Experience, and that's really what it is. It's a personal caddy that speaks to you and gives you GPS distances to the front, middle, and back of a green. And it also allows you to customize layup zones and get distances for those. Basically, it just lets you not second guess your distances or second guess the shot you've decided to hit. The Ace Smart Speaker is available for just $149.99 at PrecisionProGolf.com or Amazon.com. It could be a great holiday gift for yourself or for a golfer you know. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Now, speaking of annual tour hosts that have strayed away from some of the original design principles that, uh, that informed the course at the beginning the stadium course at TPC Sawgrass. A lot of people might be surprised to see this on the list because most of the courses on the list are from the 1920s and 30s. TPC Sawgrass opened in 1981. It's a Pete Dye design. What needs to be restored about this course?
1: Well, I mean, we, we see it with the PGA Tour. When something's different, something's challenging, something's not right, right in front of you, players complain, and the golf course suffers for it. And it gets more bland, more basic. And that's really kind of the story of TPC Sawgrass over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, 40 years now. So, you know, with Sawgrass, the the golf course has, you know, gotten more bland. It's gotten more, you know, a lot of the greens have been softened. Um, the other thing that has happened is that the golf course has gotten extremely more neat and manicured and about lush conditions. In a way, you know, you can look at Sawgrass and you can really see what the Augusta National effect of green, manicured, white sand has done. That golf course really mimics Augusta. Rather than having its own identity, it is a golf course that is, you know, that is trying to follow Augusta National. And what's sad about it is that original identity was rough, rugged. It was a golf course that was built out of a swamp. But today it is a, it is a pristine manicured golf course and it has lost that rugged nature that was its defining char- characteristic when it opened.
0: And it was also designed almost expressly to piss off PGA Tour players. Yes. <laughs> you know, Pete Dye really wanted to get in their heads. And to his credit, Dean Beeman, the commissioner of the tour at the time, was on board with that. He let Pete Dye pursue these ideas that bothered PGA Tour players. But ultimately, the complaints of the players, and really pretty early on in the course's history, started I mean, ben to Crenshaw. overwhelm that. Ben Crenshaw was involved. He called he called the course uh, like something designed by Darth Vader. There was there was a there was a quote kind of like that. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd be I'd be curious to hear Crenshaw's overall thoughts because I'm sure they were more interesting than just, oh, this course is unfair. But that kind of chorus of complaints from the pros by the mid 80s really caused some changes to be made. And one of the things with that is that we've seen a
1: course, a good example, like the ocean course, which we saw the PGA was wildly entertaining to watch. And one of the things I think that Pete Dye had the benefit of that the architects of the golden age knew, but didn't really know is that really the true trajectory of, of where equipment was going. Now Pete Dye's golf courses were built with that in mind, knowing that the game and the equipment was going to continue to get better. And you know, where that's one of the things that I always wonder about with Sawgrass is like What would that golf course look like today had it not been significantly overhauled? And how much how would the challenge present itself? Because one of the things with Sawgrass is they don't have space to make it longer. And that's one of the biggest issues there is like they don't have a lot of space. Like it's it is what it is. And you know, the evolution of it, of softening these features combined with the distance advances has really taken the, the, the teeth out of the golf course to where now it's just, you know, it's a glorified, it's, it's a, it's still got a lot of the strategy and the interesting thing that that die does with angles and, you know, preferred lines and, you know, hitting away, like when you, play away from water you get these tough shots but you know the the golf course has been has been you know watered down so much that the Literally. yeah that you know when you combine it with the equipment advances the athletic advances of players it's now just like a driver way you know it's a wedge fest you see on 18 you know one of the most daunting tee shots is now like a two iron or a five wood wedge, like it, it's just wild. I mean, it, it's a um, it's an unfortunate, you know, kind of combination of that early complaint and then the distance and then the equipment advances where where the golf course is no longer one that gets inside players heads. It's it's a fairly straightforward course.
0: It, it's sort of if you think about it, it's the opposite of what the original vision was for the course. I think some of this has been heightened by the fact that the Players Championship now takes place in March, right? So it plays a little bit softer, but a lot of this softening has happened architecturally as well. The maintenance decisions; it has gone in a direction the that, that, yeah, the overseed. It's gone in a direction that that Pete Dye certainly wouldn't have imagined. I can't imagine that he would have been a fan of it.
1: Well, the twelfth hole, then you know. Yeah, you know, the 12th hole has been totally year.
0: redesigned and has been monkeyed with every year since then, indicating that maybe it wasn't all that good of an idea to begin with. Um, in general, I think it's kind of underrated how much a lot of Pete Dye's courses have changed since they opened. Yeah. Um, you know, People think of him as a modern designer, and he is, but that doesn't mean that his courses haven't strayed pretty far away from the original vision
1: yeah. And that's, a, that's one of the things that you think about with restoration is you could see, you know, what of Pete Dye's portfolio, what of Robert Trent Jones's portfolio um, you know, and, and even we're getting on the early Tom Fazio uh, portfolio deserves to be renovated. And, you know, I, I put world woods on there. I played that golf course uh, almost 15 years ago now. And that golf course was spectacular one of my favorite public golf courses i've ever played and where it is now versus where it was 15 years ago is is it's a departure and it used to be one of the greatest public golf courses in america it's it sits on wonderful land it was obviously aesthetically supposed to match pine valley it does a very good job of that and um you know it's just a shell and i think there's some hope for it i uh you know there might be uh you know some 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 you know, positive news coming out of Whirlwoods in the near future. But, uh, the, uh, the, that, that's one that, that really, you know, you start to think about die Fazio and Robert Trent Jones. And, you know, when, yeah, Dick Wilson as, you know, kind of the next wave we're, we're getting through the the golden age courses and it's really, you know, this is the time where you start to see, you know, the, a golf course can really diminish over 40 years. So that's where, we're kind of at with the the restoration when you get past these big championship golf courses, um, and Sawgrass would be the kind of the the golden goose of, of that of that era.
0: The ultimate example, I think. Another one that we didn't include in the list, but maybe could have, is Spyglass Hill Golf Course. You know, if we're talking about courses that the Pebble Beach Company could uh, address some things at, Spyglass Hill is a great example.
1: Great example. A great. great, exa- a great- one that I wish was on the list.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I should have uh, suggested it because it was in my mind, but um, you know, the the hesitation there is that if you put Alistair McKenzie on that land, which is essentially the uh, very is very similar land to, to Cypress Point next door. In fact, the the holes in the dunes at Spyglass Hill are in the same dune system as Cypress Point. Um, then I, I don't really doubt that. Mackenzie would have created a, a better course. But Spyglass Hill is a really good example of its era of architecture, of the kind of work that Robert Trent Jones did in the 50s and 60s. I think the course looked a lot different when it opened, played a lot different, and it would be worth looking at what it was originally and considering how to bring some of that back.
1: Yeah, I I mean, Spyglass is an interesting thing. I I've always thought if you flip the nine to Spyglass, it would get considerably better right off the bat. Um, if if you if you tee off ten as one and you play through the dunes and then you come out and that and that ocean frontage is in the back half of your round, um, mm-hmm. it would be really an an incredible thing. And then obviously, it's kind of a similar. I I think like. With all the outcry that people have about the pebble and the faux dunes period of, of Egan and Mackenzie, like if you go look at an old photo of Spyglass, it's cool, especially the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth holes. You're you, that that is like mouthwatering stuff where you're like, whoa, why did we ever go away from that? And it's just this idea, I, I think it like really carries over from the Augusta fact of uh, Augusta effect. That uh, you know, color television and Augusta National had on golf is like it's very neat now, and it, it it is like you know, people I think would actually pay. This is this is the case for you know Pebble with with Spyglasses. Like the trend now is the rugged landscape, and you had that. You know, if you really roughed up Spyglass in the dunes holes too, it would just be a, a a unbelievably striking golf course.
0: Yeah, and those are actual dunes, right? To be yeah. clear. The way that it's different from Pebble Beach is that Spyglass Hill in uh, those first few holes sit on Actual dunes, the same dunes as as you see next door at, at Cypress Point, and uh, so yeah, ton of ton of potential there for sure. But also raises some of those tricky questions about what to do with mid century courses that have strayed away from their original form. Um, I think those are those are worth looking at as well. Um, as are courses from before the Golden Age. You know, maybe there are some Victorian courses out there that are that are worth Variety's looking the spice at Again, life. The, Yeah, you got to have variety among golf courses, and yet. Maybe some of those courses are, are, are pretty bad, but uh, take a look at the aesthetics, take a look at uh, what was there before, and and maybe you can recapture some of that just for the historical interest.
1: Yeah, the golf course that David Normoyle is a member at Saratoga Springs is a Victorian course that was restored by Kai Golby to Victorian status. It looks very cool. It's got a lot of above-ground features, and it's it's neat. It's its its identity, right? I think like one of the quotes that sticks with me is like, you know golf golf course is about you know, Curtis James talked about this. like his job as a superintendent, uh, he's the superintendent at Old Elm in Chicago, isn't just about maintenance. It's about how do I provide the most unique experience holes one through eighteen. and And I think that is a really good way for go- golf course operators, uh, heads of committees to to think about their golf courses
0: all right. so i want to I want to give people an idea of what's on the rest of the list. And then maybe we could talk about some courses that we wish we had included on the list or that we could have that almost made it. So number five is Ojai Valley Inn. Ojai Valley Inn is a George Thomas golf course. We have a long article about it on our site. It has completely lost its way. I'm not sure that it's going to find its way back, but there was something truly special there. And there's still a lot of it remaining. There are at least nine holes there that you could turn into something sensational
1: well and 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 more importantly the resort charges like it has something special it celebrates the history that they have uh you know uh, pardon my my french have shit on for for 40 years
0: yeah they, they promote the george thomas lineage while at the same time literally putting buildings on top of george thomas golf holes so that's what's going on there um University of Michigan golf course is number six. Alistair McKenzie built by Perry Maxwell. They use it as a parking lot on game days famously, uh, but it still looks pretty cool and, it, and it's a great opportunity.
1: Yeah. Mike DeVries has restoration plans. It's an extremely uh, successful university alumni base that somebody just needs to write a check. And from what I gather it can't be named after somebody, which is the holdup. And any Larry, uh, Larry David Curb Your Enthusiasm fans will appreciate they need a donated by anonymous type person to stand up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Somebody truly virtuous, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Number seven is George Wright, which we have discussed Recently on the podcast, but um, you say that it could be the best municipal course in the country if fully restored. Now they have it done some good work. It'd be an interesting battle.
1: There, It'd be an interesting battle. I I would love to see fully realized George Wright, fully realized Beth Page Black, which is on this list, and a fully realized uh, Stanley Thompson Sleepy Hollow, which is on this list. It would be quite a a question as to what is the best municipal golf course in America. Yeah,
0: that's that's a, a battle of of golden age municipal giants there. So um number eight is uh I'm gonna mispronounce it. Kankakee Elks Country Kankakee. Club. Kankakee. Kankakee.
1: My spot. Kankakee. Yeah that's that, this Kankakee. is this is a
0: course that you love.
1: You know, this is a golf course that can be purchased. This is a golf course that um is an hour and fifteen minutes from one of the busiest airports in America. Yeah. Chicago uh, is, O'Hare,
0: you're talking or Midway, you're talking about. This
1: this is a golf course that has a very neat history. Uh Joe Lewis used to uh train in Kankakee when he was the heavyweight champion of the world and uh played his golf when in Kankakee at Kankakee Elks. Wow. Uh, it is a Langford Moreau golf course. It is a it is a golf course that um you know I I I'm often dismissive a little bit on here of Chicago as a great golf city. Chicago uh, as a golf city would, would dramatically leap up my city rankings with the restoration of K- Kankakee Elks. People look at me like I'm nuts when I say that I, I believe it's the fourth best golf course in the state if it was fully um, restored. It would Immediately jump into the conversation with Chicago Golf Shore Acres in Old Elm as the best golf course in the state. It has green greens that rival Chicago Golf's greens if they were expanded and maintained properly. Um, and it it is uh, you know what Lausonia is to Wisconsin, Kankakee Elks is to Illinois.
0: Number nine is Timber Point Country Club. Um, this is on Long Island was a Charles Hugh Allison design. There is a picture that often circulates of the so-called Gibraltar hole, uh, which you have to kind of see to believe. But um, this is a a really intriguing, tantalizing golf course. Now, not all of it still exists. It's now a 27-hole complex. 12 of those holes, I believe you said, were part of the original Allison design. So certainly something could be done.
1: And it was expanded to 27 holes. Uh, it was, you know, it was a country club and then the uh, Long Island um, Parks District or whatever the governing Long Island golf body took over it. And, um, you know, the the thing here, and I think there's like a successful possibly use case is if you look at what happened at St. Patrick's, the Tom Doak project uh, in Ireland, where they had 27 holes of kind of we weren't ever going to have anything great in the 27 holes on the plot of land for modern golf that they had. Um, the idea of, of renovating here, re- restoring what you can renovating and taking the facility from 27 holes to 18 offers the opportunity to, to have one of the crown jewels of public golf in America. And um, obviously Long Island is known, you know, for its private golf, you know, it's, uh, you know, Shinnecock, National Golf Links, Maidstone, Friars Head. And then you've got Bethpage Black as in the public sphere. It would be a, a really neat thing to have Timber Point also on the island. And, uh, it, it could become a public golf mecca as well with Bethpage Red, Bethpage Black, and, uh, Timber Point. You'd have three of the best 10 public golf courses, uh, you know, a municipally owned golf courses in America
0: the 10th ranked restoration opportunity uh right now in american golf uh, according to our list is sleepy hollow golf course stanley thompson municipal course in the cleveland area we mentioned it previously um this is one of those kind of big municipal projects that could that could really produce something sensational
1: yeah i you know something i've been learning over the last 24 hours is i've been lit up with uh with you know anytime cleveland ohio gets a gets a bone you know they get really excited anything anything nationally you know <laughs> any, cleveland it, metro Cle-
0: parks got tagged a lot when we posted this article yeah, yeah.
1: uh you know as uh, as joe Kim noah famously said you know whoever says i'm going to cleveland one of the great quotes of uh all time uh, sorry, Cleveland <laughs> to, to be clear, we,
0: we don't necessarily agree with him. We just think that that's oh, a I agree funny thing to him. say.
1: I'm a, I'm a Chicago, so I got a. I got to the, there, th-
0: There's a lot of great golf in the Cleveland area. Yes, there's, there uh, is. For golfers, <laughs> th- this is a a prime place to go to. Really, that's true.
1: A great golf. See, and and here's the thing: Metro Parks has um, is like a sensational organization and has done a wonderful stuff with parks and recreation around the around the city. The thing about it, you know, they have these immaculate parks, immaculate, and they they have their sitting on Manikiki, a Dal Ross course, which is very, very, very good. And Stanley Thompson, uh, uh, Sleepy Hollow, which is extraordinary. And they're sitting on these two golf courses that could be world class municipal golf courses are very good as they are today. But you know the the standard of which they keep their parks doesn't match the standard of
0: which they keep their golf courses yeah all right the the next course on the list is pine barrens at worldwoods golf club tom fazio which we talked, we talked about, about it earlier so we can kind of skip over that one but but you know certainly a course that should be considered uh for a restoration even though it's a fairly it, it was designed in 1993
1: yeah, and then we can talk about the uh, you know the uh, three of the the remaining courses on the list are all in California. You got the Harding and Wilson uh, courses at Griffith Park, which are George Thomas designs. Uh, you have Santa Anita, which is a James Harrison Smith design in Arcadia, California, and you have Sharp Park. Uh, which is in Pacifica in in uh, San Francisco, which was in Alistair McKenzie. Now, like one thing that you'll notice with this whole list is how many courses are in California. I think like California is probably arguably the best golf state in the world in the in the country. Now it could be even better. And the reason is because of the natural features that, that it provides, where you have mountains, you have sandy soil, and you have extraordinary natural features with the canyons, barrancas, and all that. Um, you know, one of the places, Santa Anita, isn't one of those. It's in the mountains, it sits right at the foothills of the mountains in Arcadia, but it was all constructed. It's one of the most amazing uh, construction projects that's ever happened uh in in given when it was built in the 30s and uh and what was done to the land to make it a golf course you know um and then with the other two with sharp park and and wilson you're talking about restorations of you know uh of courses that were built by two of the greatest architects of of all time arguably probably two of the three to five best architects uh, in, in American golf.
0: Yeah. And with both courses, they have gotten really far from what they were oh, originally. Very. Sometimes for legitimate reasons, other times because they were just neglected. But right now at Griffith Park and at Sharp Park, I'm not sure that you can say that they properly <laughs> represent a George Thomas design on the one hand or an Alistair McKenzie design on the other hand. They, they've just gone really, really far away from that. That's not to say that a lot can't be recovered because a lot could be recovered at both courses, but you would need to take a pretty ambitious approach in order to get something that resembles what those original architects would have built there. Now at Sharp Park specifically, there used to be holes on the beach, right? There used to be holes that had fairways in the lagoon, the seaside lagoon that the course plays around. Those are features that you can't get back, right? They have built a seawall on top of the beach because those holes washed away in a storm fairly early on in the course of life. The lagoon is now an environmentally sensitive area. It's been the subject of lawsuits. I don't think you can build holes back into the lagoon there. You can't really even build them that well around the lagoon. What you can do at Sharp Park is bring in a designer who knows what he or she is doing, and uh do some sympathetic renovation recapture some mckenzie flavor on the holes that still exist there and and just do your best to to help that course serve the public as well as possible griffith park is kind of the same deal um you know i don't know the details of the history of that course quite as well but i've, I've played those courses jeff
1: talked about it in the george thomas podcast a little right. bit yeah like um You know, they got renovated with like basically a copy and paste job with greens and surrounds. And, you know, the uh, the these would be massive undertakings. One of the reasons they're at the bottom of the the 16 courses is because of just how much has to be done and how far they've strayed. You know, these are these are places that, you know, whether or not they can ever be what they were, they they can't. Um, But. At the same time, Santa Anita is in a different boat. Santa Anita can be like wonderful. And I think a lot of people are most shocked when they see this. But you you could go play Santa Anita right now and see what it could be. Um, the other two take some some creativity and and some realization.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So the ones that we haven't mentioned yet that are on the list of, of 16 great remaining restoration candidates in America are uh, 14, the black course at Bethpage State Park, good old Bethpage Black, um, obviously has gotten plenty of work done in the past 20 years. But, uh, you know, it's not a question
1: of whether what the standard of that work was, is is the question. I highly I highly recommend anybody that is listening to this that hasn't read the piece to go read the piece and, and look at the I think it's a 1938. I can't remember. I I Somebody sent it to me years ago and I've had it on my computer since, uh, 38 Ariel of Beth Page black, look at that and then take a spin on Google maps and look at what's there today. And, and you'll just see how big of a miss it was in terms of the fairways. The everyday player is just really lost in the, in just the bunker style, the magnificence of, of the bunkers in in, uh, when it opened versus what, what it is today, um, you know, one of the things that I've, uh, you know, I've learned over the years is that Reese Jones cut those bunkers into the green pads. So he, the greens have been, the green pads that were undisturbed have been disturbed. Um, and that's a shame because I think the course's shortcoming is the greens. You know, it, the routing, the topography, and the uh, strategy of the course is uh, impeccable from tee to green, uh, where where a little, a little, it literally kind of stalls out a little bit is at the greens where they're pretty, pretty flat and, and simple. That is a golf course that, you know, uh, along with Beth page red that really afford the opportunity, you know, like it's, it's one of those courses where like, I think it, you need to look at it as the bucket of like, you know, a lot of these great restorations in recent years, Oakland Hills was something that was worked on by Reese Jones numerous times before it was, properly restored you know and and beth beige black kind of falls into that that
0: bucket all right final place on the list 16 is high point golf club tom Doak's first course he documented the construction of this course pretty extensively in his book uh, the anatomy of a golf course um, and getting and, to uh, 18 yes um uh, along along with his other early courses um so it's now a hops farm the course closed down but it's still kind of sitting there, <laughs> and we've got a cool picture of of Tom Doak out on the course, kind of pointing at something, what what is clearly a golf hole. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff still there. I'm not sure how uh, reasonable it is to expect that uh, something will happen there again.
1: Tom Tom says that it's an oversaturated golf market, but I kind of think that the I, I think the allure here, um, which we didn't really put in here in the article is that and Tom's mentioned numerous times on the podcast with him is that, uh, this is the only golf course that Tom Doak built everything. Right. You know, this is, he, <laughs> he, he was built out there. all 18. He built all 18 greens. And, uh, I think that's the allure here. Like, you know, he just recently like a course that was a huge restoration, like the bit, one of the big what ifs that we haven't talked about is Dornick Hills. And the reason that it, it's such an important, restoration is because it was perry maxwell's first and home golf course and um tom Doak lives in traverse city this is tom Doak's first golf course and you know given his uh portfolio of designs he's going to go down as one of the greatest architects um, ever and this is his first golf course that's just kind of sitting there and in a wonderful vacation spot for america like that's that's the thing and and a place where he lives it's kind of his, in a way, door to kill's. So, it, you know, you could put some other courses of Tom's on here. Aetna Springs, the 9 or in uh, in Napa Valley that's kind of just sitting there. Aetna
0: Springs is is close to my heart. Um, yeah. It's one of the one of the early courses that I played in my renewed golf architecture obsession uh, several years ago when I was kind of getting back into it. And a nine-hole course, northern Napa Valley, absolutely beautiful was suffering by the time I played it and has since closed down, you know, that could be one of the very best nine hole courses in the country. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's another kind of category of potential restoration candidates, just good courses that may have been built pretty recently that have been abandoned, but maybe could be reclaimed now that there is a big uptick in interest in golf. All right. So, uh, I think we should do this briefly, but, five other notable restoration candidates that we listed are Balboa park golf course in San Diego, William P bell, Billy bell. Um, 1933 is when the course that's currently there was really built. Um, East Lake golf club, Donald Ross. We're not sure exactly how great East Lake was originally, but it's, uh, at this point, the annual host of the tour championship has gotten pretty far from, uh, anything resembling Ross, Ah, uh, there's the there's Bethpage Red, which we mentioned earlier, kind of the fun the fun course at Bethpage. It's still difficult, but uh, but many would argue, uh, as you say in the article, that it's the best course on the property. Um, there's Reynolds Park in North Carolina, Winston Salem, pretty near Old Town Club, which uh, was the recipient of one of the best restorations of the modern era by Corin Crenshaw, Perry Maxwell Course Municipal. We've talked Wonderful about it land. on the podcast before. That's a sleeping giant. Such a cool uh, routing, um, and uh, and really could could use some help. And and there's there's maybe an opportunity.
1: It probably deserved to be higher yeah. on the list. Um, but you know the the thing of the the doing this exercise bore out was just like how many the best opportunities are municipal courses.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, and Sun Eagles fits that category too. I'm actually not sure if it's a municipal course, but it's a former private course that has turned public. Uh, Tillinghast design in New Jersey that has some mouthwatering greens. Yeah. And old photos. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's enough there to do uh, to do a restoration. All right. So with all that said, what are some of the misses? What are some of the courses that we wish we had included on this list?
1: Swope park which we talked about on the pod yeah that was just like honestly a braid fart Yep, i uh that's a tilling design that's pretty much just sitting there that it would be a really fun sporty course uh with a restoration um it's not overly long but big uh, severe plot of land and and really neat routing um so that's one that i would put in there i think uh you know one in texas that we didn't mention uh, Cedar Crest, which was the 1927 PGA host. Another Tillinghast design would be one that's a municipal course in Dallas. Uh, Great golf town. If, If Cedar
0: Crest were restored, Dallas would have very little competition for being the best public golf city in America. All right. Columbia Country Club is one that maybe should have been included.
1: Yeah, that that's a private. That's a Walter Travis. That's one of the few that we uh, that you know. Few. I thought about it. I thought about putting it, but then you know, uh, a friend of the podcast, George Water, sent me a bunch of old photos. I would seen one or two, and then I looked through the whole batch and thought to myself, Ah, that was a miss. Probably, yeah. probably should have been on here. I I do I do understand that there's some possible easement. That situation that could have a road going through the center of it, which might dash any hopes of that happening. Um, and then and then the Pacific Northwest, which to me is kind of the great unknown. It's it's your backyard, so yeah, I, I wanted to kick unknown. it over to you.
0: I know it. <laughs> I mean, there aren't that many opportunities here because we did not get this infusion of amazing Golden Age architecture. You know, Seattle is kind of A.V. McCann's town but there aren't that many public McCann courses that I know of. Chandler Egan did a whole lot of work up here. Um, I think it's right to see Chandler Egan as a second-tier Golden Age architect. He was very, very good at what he did, but he wasn't anywhere near the level of the Golden Age architects that you know the names of.
1: And McCann probably is in the same bucket. Yeah,
0: yeah. McCann did some really good work, but, um, but nothing that jumps out as, like, wow, that was brilliant, you know? Uh, and so I think it's worth restoring these courses that they built um, and looking at the historical record and, and recapturing some of the stuff that they did, but also considering how they could have been better in the first place. Now, the thing that's great about Chandler Egan is that he built a lot of public courses. You know, he he lived in the area, and and he, you know, just gave his services to, to pretty much anybody who asked, seemingly. And so Eastmoreland Golf Course in Portland – is really a wonderful public golf course, but they've planted way too many trees on it. It's been taken over by Blackberry in the past 10 or 15 years in in a major way, and and they just need to clear some things out there, open up some sight lines across the property, and it's just beautiful. And there are some really fantastic greens there that I'm curious about. Um, West Seattle is another Chandler Egan course in Seattle, municipal course on a great piece of land. And uh, so these these are some these are the ones that I think of. Those are the courses I think of when I think what the potential for restoration could be in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so another couple ones that should be mentioned: uh, Essex County Francis A. Byrne in uh, New Jersey, Charles Banks course. Uh, would be pretty cool with a with a restoration, and then Rock, Rock Spring, Spring, which I yeah. visited and and wrote about on the website. We didn't include in this list mainly because there is a restoration plan on the table there uh, that Kyle Franz is probably going to carry out, and uh, and so you know the future is looking bright for Rock uh, Rock Spring. But but that's still, a course, that that could use a uh, a restoration. It would be pretty special. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the list. I'm sure oh, there are a few so thoughts that we, did, that we, I mean, there are more courses that we could mention.
1: Next, next up is renovation list, you know, yeah. I'll, oh, I'll get cranking on that. And, you know, I have a, you know, that would, would come with the caveat of like, there's a million courses that I haven't seen that sit on wonderful ground. Yep. Um, cause that's what I think renovations about is, is, is really when you look at the great renovation opportunities is, Hey, is this is this on a great plot of land that we can make something spectacular from something that's not. And I think that's the next frontier. That is the, you you see some courses that were nothing burgers that are turned into, to really great golf courses. So that's, that's the kind of the exciting thing. I I think like, you know, when I think about restoration work, there's also going to be a lot of restoration work. And, and let me just put this out there. I'm not going to name it, but there's a lot of restoration work that, really is committee-driven that's not very good. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so there's going to be continued restoration work at courses that received restorations within the last five years that just frankly isn't very good work. Yeah.
0: So here's one last idea that that has come to me about what the future of restoration might look like. Um, You know, restoration so far in the past 20 years seems to have mostly meant... Restore the shaping of the golf course, the aesthetics, restore corridor width, fairway width, sometimes restore the strategic positioning of hazards. So the basic strategies of the holes, restore green shapes and contours, but pretty much modernize everything else, right? Put these high tech systems under greens, you know, the maintenance practices are really modern at a lot of these supposedly restored golf courses. And I understand why. I mean, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. The, the things that they're doing with maintenance right now are amazing and uh, understandable for courses that host championships uh, or get a lot of play uh, or just want to have some kind of tools at their disposal that allow them to present the golf course exactly how they want it to be presented. But um, the result is that the courses don't look a huge amount, like they looked in the twenties and thirties. I mean, you know, in terms of the shaping, in terms of the architecture they do, but in terms of the maintenance practices, they look really different. And again, not necessarily a bad thing, but maybe one of the next steps that we'll see in restoration is restoring some of the maintenance strategies that were in place at these courses originally. Um, not just because you want to do this, but because a lot of courses are going to be forced to do this to kind of reduce the inputs that they're putting into the golf course and to get a little more bare bones in their conditioning approach. I think that changes in the climate changes in water supply, a lot of the things that are going to happen over the next few decades are going to force courses to reconsider how they approach maintenance. And so maybe one of the things that we'll see in the work that architects are doing at older courses is how can we make maintenance more efficient, more environmentally friendly, Uh, and all that kind of stuff um does that kind of make sense as a thought yeah
1: yeah totally i i I mean maintenance sustainability that's i sustainability is going to be a big thing in the next you know
0: it has to be 10 years we can't we can't avoid it it's inevitable and so and and architects are going to have to be involved in that process
1: so uh this will do it this is probably too long already but uh (laughs)
0: Thanks for sticking with us, if you're still here.
1: Yeah, and uh, we'll be back with uh, with more next week.
0: This episode was edited by Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. If you've been enjoying the Friday podcast lately, maybe consider leaving a rating or review in iTunes. Those really do help us out. Thanks for listening.